0: I'm Jamie Green. This is Trading Fours. Hey, do you hear that crowd? They're kind of going crazy, aren't they? One of the people going crazy was yours truly. Yes, this is a bootleg of c Ray Vaughn back in April of 1990. And I was there, and I was seeing my hero, the reason why I picked up the guitar, right in front of me playing live for the third time in my life. And then just like that, it was all over. Today's guest is the author Alan Paul. He, along with Andy Aladort, wrote Texas Flood, the inside story of Steve Ray Vaughan. It's a great book. I really enjoyed it. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about his Almond Brothers book a little bit. And then we're going to spend a little bit of time also talking about his time in China when he actually went over and started the blues band and actually was voted the most popular band in Beijing. It's a great story. Alan was very kind to talk to me. I think you're going to enjoy this. But obviously, it being me, we're going to spend a lot of time with Steve Ray because it's 30 years later, and I still miss him. But before we get to all that, I'd like to welcome my new sponsor, Perfect Brew. Perfect Brew is your free resource for everything coffee. They offer expert guides, how-tos, and reviews. Discover how to enjoy better coffee on any budget with perfectbrew.com. That's perfectbrew.com. Head over there and get your caffeine fix. And Lord knows, during the quarantine, you're going to need your caffeine fix. I'm drinking coffee as we speak. Thanks so much to Perfect Brew for being a sponsor, but let's uh, get started. Here's my conversation with Alan Paul. I'll just start with a little bit of background. Um, I bought the book right when it came out, the C. Vaughn book. Thank you. Uh, and I loved it, and... um the first thing is kind of interesting. When I first opened it, I was a little concerned how you you had it all with everybody's first-person history and their background and th- just their stories about Stevie Ray. But I felt like it worked really well. It almost felt to me like I was sitting in a room with these people, and they were telling me these stories chronologically. So why did you decide to do it that way?
1: Right. and And I'm glad you said that because that is what the – intended effect is, so it worked as far as that goes. Um, so One Way Out, uh, my Alman Brothers book was written in the same format, which is called Oral History. And I did it w- with the Allman Brothers. So so, so I can't answer why I did it with Texas Flood without going back to why I did it with the Alman Brothers. And then I found that it worked, and so I carried it over. But I did it for that it, for a couple of reasons. So both of these books, in a way, have their origin stories in um, lengthy um, articles I did for Guitar World uh, with the Almond Brothers for the 40th anniversary. And the Stevie Ray Vaughan was in Revolver, which became a metal magazine, but was actually born by Brad Talinsky, who is the editor in chief of Guitar World and founded Revolver to be sort of an American mojo. And it did great for about four or five issues. And they just didn't have the advertising. So they it shifted into this metal magazine. The first, those four or five issues of Revolver are really worth tracking down for okay. hardcore music fans. I'll check it out. Um, yeah. And I wrote two of the cover stories. The very first one was at the doors. And the second was um, Stevie Ray Vaughan. And both of them employed the oral history format. And so did my Almond Brothers story. Um, for Guitar World, which was for the 40th anniversary. And in each of those cases, one of the reasons that that I did it is that I had voluminous interviews. Now, in a magazine story, even a really long magazine story, all of which, all all three of these stories I'm talking about, The Doors, Allman Brothers, and Steve Ray Vaughan, were very long by magazine standards, but that's still pretty, you know, nothing compared to a book. And I was lucky enough to have voluminous interviews and access to all these great people. And I wanted to access, uh, accentuate that. Um, and so you can really let it run a little bit in that format and bring the people to life. Um, but it's also convenient when you're, when you have holes in the story (laughs) that you can just sort of skip over things in a way that you couldn't with the narrative. Now in a book format, that goes out the window you're you you do not want any right. holes anyhow um but th- that was part of all of that was my original rationale now with both the allman brothers and stevie ray Vaughan, the other thing that I, I think separated these books from anything that had come prior was inside access to people so in the allman brothers case voluminous interviews with dickie betts and greg allman as well as all the other members and, and associated friends and such and um in Stevie Ray Vaughan with the members of double trouble um, with Jimmy Vaughan, his brother, and to some extent with Stevie himself um, through my co-writer, Andy Alador interviewed Stevie five times. Um, And we felt that previous books that had come out, didn't have access to those people. And so it was a way to bring them forward. Um, And, and again, just to go back to the Allman brothers, uh, Dickie and Greg in particular were such colorful conversationalist you know greg would say things like you know describing how midnight rider came up uh, tim came to him in like one um uh you know force of inspiration he said that song hit me like a bag of hoe handles (laughs) and who talks like that you know greg did and then and they were so colorful so like why would i ever paraphrase a word from greg allman (laughs) right and 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 to some extent it was the same with with uh Stevie but we also we wanted you to have that feeling of sitting in a room talking and getting that feel from everyone
0: yeah um, yeah you, it you you nailed it i mean you really did yeah. thank and I, you and i i was a a big i've been playing guitar for 35 years so for years i had guitar world i had the subscription and i some and some box that my wife hasn't found we haven't thrown out i'm sure i have tons of back issues um, right. Probably from about 1985 to the early 90s. So uh, it's really right. cool to get to talk to you.
1: Thank you. Well, I started working at Guitar World as the managing editor in February of 1991, um, and and from 91 to 96, I was the managing editor. And then uh, I moved. And so I, I quit that job and became a senior writer and ran the website, which was pretty new at that time, uh, from 96 to 2005
0: when I moved to China. <laughs> and yeah. then I
1: became sort of a contract writer.
0: Yeah. And I want to get to China in a second because I thought that was fascinating, too. You know, it's so interesting. And, and I'm sure I think I looked you up. We're almost the same age. I was born in 68. You were born in 66, right? Yep. So you know, I, there's a whole generation doesn't understand how important guitar magazines were to help us guitar players figure things out. There was no, you couldn't YouTube things. You couldn't go watch and see what a guy was doing unless you saw him in concert. So we would anxiously await for you guys to put out the tablature on these things. So we could try to figure things out that were very difficult for us. So I was, I was greatly looked forward to getting it in the mail and checking out who you guys were going to focus on. So
1: thank you. And I'm sure, you know, the guys who are 10 and 20 years older than us would say, you guys are lucky, you know. You had the guitar <laughs> magazines, so it's it is a steady stream upwards of it getting easier in a way to access information. Because, you know, the original guy, you know, those guys didn't have um, easy access to the magazines and the interviews, and the and then the, and then and then once they did start to have that, they didn't have the tabs, right? You know, mm-hmm. and so it's been a steady stream. So Andy Alidord, who um, co-wrote One Way Out, I mean, I'm sorry, co-wrote Texas Flood with me. Um, Uh, you know if you're a guitar magazine guy i'm sure you know andy he was really one of the pioneers of tab um he didn't invent it but he was one of the guys who mastered it and really you know i tell people all the time that andy is like america's guitar teacher i mean there's just like uh, you know millions of people literally that learned how to play guitar from andy so um you know it, it was it was cool and it's interesting because when one way out came out um you know, so mo- most of our career was spent pre-social media and, you know, whatever. You did your thing. And I had a little bit of access to the general public because I did run the Guitar World website for like 10 years. And we used to have a really active message board. And... But, um, you know, I'd be writing all these articles about the Almond Brothers. And at some point, it's sort of like, oh, yeah, I'm interviewing Chris Layton again for a C.V. Ray Vaughn thing. Or oh, I'm going to interview Warren Haynes again for like the 10th time in four years right. or whatever. Then you throw those articles out there and feel good about them. But, you know, you never really knew if you're having that much impact. It's not like any of this stuff was, um, you know, the top of the charts or something. It was sort of its own niche. So when One Way Out came out and I and I would go out and do book events and meet people and so many people would say to me like, Oh, your articles were just like lifelines to me, come to my house. Like nobody else was writing about the Almond brothers. And to know that, you know, there was someone out there who cared about this music and you always do these great interviews and it was really meaningful, you know, sort of like, wow. Okay. So my, I didn't waste my career. Right. <laughs> and uh, you know, it was, it was cool. It was gratifying. And um, I, you know, I didn't have any master plan that all of this would result in, Great Almond Brothers and Stevie Ray Vaughan expertise that would lead to books and a whole new career. I mean, it took me a long time to realize that that was, you know, some something there, and that it meant something to people. So it's it's very gratifying in that
0: regards. Absolutely. So did you and Andy decide to co-write it because Andy had actually interviewed Stevie Ray Vaughan five times, or was what because I know the other books you've written, you just wrote on your own.
1: Right. Um basically so um after one way out uh was successful, you know, it was a New York Times bestseller and it did it did really well, which was great. And the publisher sort of, you know, was I, I knew that I could publish another book. I just had to come to them with an idea of something I wanted to do. And I had the idea pretty early to do Stevie because um a book is such a deep dive. Like I can't do it at something that I'm not really passionate about the topic or really interested in it and Stevie was the obvious guy to me I didn't feel there had really been a proper biography of him much like the Allman Brothers someone who was really important there had been one book done that was you know had its issues although I you know both in both cases books I enjoyed but didn't think were great Mm -hmm. and Stevie was just sitting there waiting to be done and I had relationship with Jimmy I had some really good interviews as a basis for it but I knew I wanted to include Andy if I did that because of his interviews um and it's not just that he interviewed him five times I um you know from us both working at Guitar World Andy and I were friends and I had read the whole all his entire interviews in whole and they were great interviews and uh, I met with a publishing friend and talked to him about it someone really prominent in the industry and he said you can't follow up a bestseller with a a joint book. You got to do something on your own. So I put it off for like six months and I had actually worked on um, something else that just didn't feel right to me. I put it aside and I just said, you know, I don't care if it's like, you know, the quote unquote right thing to do or not. This is the book I want to do. So I called up Andy. I didn't know if he would want to co-write or not. I mean, I was also willing to just, um, license his interviews and you know prop give him a credit on the cover or whatever i you know we never i i had a thought that if he didn't want to because it's it's a huge commitment of time right. and you know financially it doesn't exactly make sense like you know you end up getting paid like a quarter an hour <laughs> even even when you get a decent deal because it's so much time to do it right um as anyhow i i, I was open if andy didn't want to go all in to, to work something out with him but he immediately wanted to so I I never had to really think of exactly what that would be so it, w- it was pretty easy in that regard um, and you know writing together was challenging at times <laughs> just yeah. like any creative project it's harder in some ways to do with someone else than alone but it's also easier in some ways like like i could be writing a section while andy was in doing a whole bunch of interviews for instance but i think more importantly from your perspective or from you being the reader's perspective right um it made for a better book so it was sort of like constantly having an editor because you had to justify everything you know we would butt heads sometimes but um you know for the most part um, I wanted to take stuff out and be more streamlined and Andy wanted to put stuff in. Okay. And I think without me, his book would have been too all over the place, but without him, mine would have left out some really cool stuff. And, and to be honest, um, so that was a good tension like that, that brought out the best. And it forced each of us to confront our weakness, I guess, if you could say, or, you know, to battle a little bit, it was, it was a good thing. And, um, in my first two books, big in China and one way out, my only regrets are things I left out. And so I was sort of aware of that as a weakness. Like I really, really like, um, things to have a lot of momentum. You know, I like crime fiction. Like I really like George Pelicanos and Elmore Leonard. Um, these are some of the writers I admire just as, as writers and they're like really lean and and propulsive. And so so I wanted to recreate that kind of feeling in nonfiction. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think I'm pretty successful at it, but the downside to that is that, you know, sometimes you cut stuff out that seems extraneous and sometimes those tangential things are really cool, you know? And, and so in both my first two books, my only regrets are things I left out. And even in, even in this one, it's the same thing, even with it, there's, and there's less of it because of that, you know, like, like a good example. um, I don't think we fought over this, but you know, there was a story in in Texas Flood about when Stevie Ray met uh, Prince. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you recall that. <laughs> oh Chris yeah, tell us the story. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they met him. We met him at Born in the USA tour opener in Minnesota. So okay, that alone just start there. Like you know, it's Springsteen Born in the USA tour, which is like the biggest tour of the eighties oh, yeah. in a way. Yeah. One of them, certainly of the mid eighties. And Prince and Stevie Ray Vaughan are both there. So that that alone, like, right, that, that's like incredible to me and then stevie really liked prince and so he sees him backstage and he goes up to try to say hi to him and he was kept from him by chick his bodyguard which was just a great detail too chick was this giant guy and anyone who did anything around prince you know knew about chick he was his bodyguard from the beginning to the end and uh you know stevie kept trying to say hi to prince and prince was saying what's that you know he, he wouldn't you know, he wouldn't he could hear him, but he wouldn't talk to him. It was all through Chick, And so finally, uh, Stevie said, you tell him he might be the prince, but I'm the king bee and he's yeah. got to deal with it. And that was a great little story. It, it was like a barnacle to the overall story. It had no point. There was nothing that came before it or after it. There was no narrative function of that story, but it was just such a great uh, detail that, you know, it had to be in there just it's an amazing story and it gets brought up to us all the time i mean people love that story so well i
0: i think probably there's a, several components to that right first of all they were both great guitar players i mean both of them I, prince gets kind of underlooked yeah. as a guitar player and then prince i mean i love prince but let's fit prince was a weird dude i mean he just yeah. was. he's i mean have you been to paisley park
1: i have not no i, but,
0: I mean you got to go tour paisley park yeah. i mean it's just like nobody but prince would have a 20 foot wide you know, mural of himself holding out his arms with the people that he influenced on one side and the people in, I mean, right. it's, it's so Prince. It's just any, anyway. so I love things like that. Those are just great. Look, it's such an eight. Like you said, it's a, it's an 80s story. You've got three big, huge eighties acts in there. too. Right. So that's great. Um, well, I, I've got my theory on why Steve Ray Vaughan is such a compelling story. And, and I'm I'm curious to hear yours too. And, and mine always has been that, uh, well, I think every guitar player just loves him. And I think, you know What? My first time I heard him, it was all about, you know, things were so it was all overproduced and it was all synthesizers and it was all just overthought and just not great. And to hear him for the first time, um, I can still remember where I was. So I, I think that authenticity is such a big deal, too. And it's such a tragic tale, too, right, that he gets his life together. He was only 35, which as we get older, that seems really young. Right. And how much, you know, his brother's still out there playing um, to this day. And and so, you know, Stevie would still be doing it. So I'm kind of curious, like, what do you think makes it such a great story?
1: Well, first of all, everything you said, yes, (laughs) there's nothing you said I disagree with. And, you know, so but if you if you extrapolate it a little bit more, it's like so the first part of it how did he get so good? And and, you know, you're talking about every guitar player loves Stevie Ray Vaughan. And I I think that's true. And every, the people who don't have never really listened to him, you know, they're objecting to the idea of Stevie Ray Vaughan, or they've heard maybe one lick they didn't like or something. Um, Because Stevie could overplay sometimes. I mean, uh, uh, no, I will take that back. I don't think Stevie did overplay. Stevie played a lot. And so if you take one little thing in isolation, it might seem like overplaying, but if you just, Dig in a little bit deeper at all. Um, that's not what he was doing. So, for me, I my initial stuff to Stevie, I didn't love the really uh, upbeat stuff because it's a little too frantic for me. You know, I think now I understand it was really driven by speed and cocaine.
0: Yeah, there's <laughs> but, a lot of that.
1: Yeah, <laughs> but when he dug down a little bit, I mean, he could be so soulful. Mm-hmm. You know, and and I mean, even Texas Flood. You know, one of the first. Uh, things. I mean, he, he was really a deep player If you're a guitar player The, the facility he played with and, and, and that brings up another thing So one reason that people also that if, if they do criticize Stevie They're responding to his followers Because some of the Stevie Ray Vaughan imitators Could be kind of annoying um, oh, uh, Because totally. they played with all the they, they picked up on the speed and the flash And the idea that you could play blues like that but they lost the blues feeling and that deepness. And so some people would say Stevie did, but Stevie never did at all. It's just easy to uh miss that because it's it's a shallow listening, put it that way, if if you think that. Um, and and what you said about the simplicity in that over era is absolutely the case. And um one of the things that stuck out to me, so, so, uh, you know, the first, before any of the solos of the first time, most people outside of Texas heard Stevie was his playing. on um, David Bowie's let's dance. Right. Um, which was just a brilliant move by Bowie. You know, he saw him at the Montreux jazz festival and had the, you know, vision and the wherewithal to say, that's what I need on this album. Um, which is really pretty incredible. Um, and so eventually we interviewed Nile Rogers. Unfortunately we never got to interview David, um, uh, which would have of course been amazing. We were trying and he he passed away. But um, before that, even I had interviewed Bob Clearman, pretty famous engineer that worked on a million albums that you love um, about it. And he said, well, the first thing that stuck out to me about working with Stevie was he showed up at the studio uh, with a, with just his guitar. And we had, you know, had asked us to rent a Fender, I think uh, either Twin or Super Reverb. And he said at the time, that was just unheard of. I mean, guitarists came in with crates and crates and racks and racks of digital gear. And that did, you know, if you know anything about guitar or music, that changed, you know, not immediately, of course. But that was the beginning of a revolution um, where that, you know, and, and nobody nobody want you could buy a, an old Fender Strat or Gibson Les Paul uh, in the early 80s for you know a song and a dance they were they were considered old outdated instruments and the same yeah. with those great vintage amps like you have one behind you I yeah it's guess. a
0: 1983 fender yeah. super champ that's yeah. my that's my office amp so yeah.
1: so um but yeah the simple fender amps and gibson and fender guitars i mean um they were sort of considered relics and 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 You know, he brought that back. The whole boutique amp industry uh, really started with him, with Cesar Diaz, uh, you know, modding his amps and then making his own. And so he had a huge, huge influence on the guitar world aside from that. But to get back to your original question about what it made him so compelling. So there's all of that. He came in, he kicked down the door. He blasted people back, reminded people of what they had been missing. Um, And then he was so close to being a rock and roll stereotype i mean he you know he drank until and did cocaine until he had holes in his nose and his stomach in effect um collapsed and almost died um and if he had died then it still would have been a compelling uh, tragedy but of a totally different sort but he didn't you know he came back and one of the things that really stood out to me doing this book that i hadn't fully realized is just how bad a shape he was in and also just how fully he dedicated himself to recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's both in terms of getting clean and ha- and changing the way he lived. Um, and that was in uh, October of 1986. Uh, he died in August of 1990. So for almost four years, you know, a couple months under four years, he lived this new life. And I think he was a little shaky for about a year, getting his legs back under him. And then he was just incredible you know both his playing his music the way he lived his life the inspiration he gave to people um was incredible the last two projects he did was in Step, his last solo album uh, with double trouble um which had in addition to this incredible playing and singing you know he he started to write about these topics um and and also to play music of others who wrote about it but songs like crossfire tightrope wall of denial yeah those are basically all songs about the program and about struggling with addiction and becoming an adult and um and they're fantastic songs you know he says that and doyle bramhall senior said that said it to me who co-wrote um uh wall of denial and uh tightrope um uh they were worried about being preachy it's really hard to turn that stuff into art yeah but they did it. They did it. And so that's the other thing that makes his death then from a stupid helicopter crash so tragic. And and because not only did we lose him as a person who was becoming such a great person by all accounts and, and, and lose all this music, but something that Derek Truck said to me one time really stuck out when he was first starting to do Tedesky Trucks with his wife. And he said, you know, I'm trying to find out how to balance being a full on person and a husband and a father and a great musician Mm -hmm. and guys like Jimi Hendrix and Dwayne Allman showed us how to be the great guitarist and great musician, but they never got the other part down and how to combine them. And that's really striking to me and, and, and made me realize, I mean, that's part of what we lost with Stevie because he was doing that. He was he was blazing that trail, and I really believe in another five years. You know, I think he would have married his girlfriend, John. I think he probably would have had a kid, and 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 he would have started to to. He already had started the process of how to live a, an adult life and a responsible life, and show that you could still make this incredibly compelling music. And I think he would have taken the next step and and done it as a family man and continued to blossom. So. Um, you know, that, that trail remained to be blazed because it was, it was his, he was on it. Um, and so that, that's part of what also makes his story so compelling. I mean, how,
0: how could we have lost him to a helicopter crash? The stupidest, you know, it was terrible. You know, know. it's the only person I've ever cried for that. I didn't know personally. I just, and I think that was a lot of it because there was so much, you knew there was so much left in the tank. You knew there were, he hadn't probably even peaked yet. And, uh, you know, it's so interesting you talk about that. He was still great on drugs and alcohol until the end. I know he crashed and burned bad toward the end, but, you know, I saw him in February of 86 and he was sweating profusely. And all he would do is we'd just lift his head up and say, thank you briefly between songs. And that was it. And then the next time I saw him, he, it was in Austin at Aquafest in 1987. And then, Alan, if you ever find a bootleg of that, let me know. Cause I'm dying. I'm still looking for it. Huh. And it was like a different person. He was engaging. He was funny. He had a huge smile on his face. He, and you, he certainly could tell he was so grateful to be alive. Right. Felt like he'd completely dodged a bullet. He was just happy to be there. Right. Um, And, and, and I think that's part of it too. That's, that's part of the heartbreak because you know, he knew how good he was and, 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 and how, how lucky he was to be there and he, and that didn't happen very long. So anyway.
1: Yeah, it's, it's 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 still right. It's still very upsetting and it gets right to the to the heart and that's that's part of why I think it's, you know, p- people don't always understand this. It's genuinely painful for uh, Jimmy Vaughn still to this day to to discuss it. Um and it was just huge for us that he agreed to cooperate with this book. Um mm-hmm. you know, from the start he kind of said, well, You know, so I I should back up and say Andy and I both had long time good relationships with Jimmy um, for decades. Um, And when when he heard about the book, we we told him about the book. He said, well, I'm going to have to think about how I want to get involved. Uh, You know, I kind of wish I didn't have to deal with this and that there wasn't a book. But if there is, I'm glad it's you guys and I trust you. But I don't know what I want to do. Um, but he started immediately helping us because like his family members that we reached out to called him to get permission to speak to us and he approved it. So he gave us the thumbs up before, you know, but it still was about another year, over a year, maybe a year and a half from that until he started actively participating with us. Um, because I think it's still really, really, really wrenching for him, um, and and something he said was really uh, profound to me. He said, you know, I used to think there'd be a point where I wake up one day and be over it, be okay. And now I just realize that's not going to happen. Right. It's not going to happen. And, um, you know, you saw how emotional you just got talking about Stevie's death. Um, right. Remember, you know, it was his brother. And um and, you know, they had had a rough relationship at times over the years, but they had really were in a great place, uh, which is, is is a blessing. You know, obviously that's a good thing, but it also, I think, makes it that much more painful. They recorded the one album together. Um, I, I saw Jimmy sit in with Stevie at the 1990 Jazz and Heritage Festival, which was I'm so glad I saw. Um, at the time, it was great, but I didn't realize how special, you know, it right. was to see them together. Um, but, I mean the number of shows they would have had together in the years to come and probably more albums. I mean, it's, it's mind-bending. So there's, there's that. And just um, everybody who interviews Jimmy and talks to Jimmy, wants to talk to him at least in part about, about Stevie. you know, which makes sense because you probably would do the same thing. Right. I mean, who I would,
0: I would part of, you know, and that's, so gets a great point because um, part of me would want to be like, really respectful of him. Cause like you said, and I think it's even in the book. He said, you know, everybody lost Stevie Ray Vaughan. I lost my brother. Right. right. And that's, that's a thousandfold worse than what I've gone through. Right. And, and, and you know, the, the guy, they just lost their dad before that and all. So I, I get that. And so I'd have to try to think, how do you walk that fine line? Because part of me would want to be to say, you know, the reason why I picked up the guitar, right. I was a piano player before is because of Stevie, but I don't, Well, one of the the things that's hard,
1: one of the things to be honest, that's that is hard for Jimmy, is that he hears those stories over and over and over, and he 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 understands it for what it is. That each single person who says that to him is uh, being very respectful and and honest, Um, but the cumulative effect of it, I think, is
0: is difficult uh, to hear it over and over. I will say, um, I'm just going to say real quick, if you do talk to him again, thank him so much for doing those displays. I I drove down to Tulsa and getting to see all the guitars again it was very bittersweet but it was so nice and i I really appreciate him doing that i know like yeah for him to do things like that
1: yeah and i think that 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 was that that helped us in a way and that was indicative of that he was starting to come to terms with it in fact the first time i talked to jimmy in a while was i talked to him for guitar world about about that um exhibit and that's when we had the conversation about the book the first time. So um but that was that was good for him and he was sort of coming out of his um you know just you know and part of that I think was what he said. Like I said, he said I thought that I would get over it and then I had to accept I wouldn't. Mm-hmm. So part of it was okay, this is part of my life now. <laughs> this and you know finally coming to grips with that. And so it's nice if people want to honor Stevie and I'm gonna I'm gonna deal with it. So yeah.
0: Um well, I know we're going real long and I, I maybe in six months when we're out of our houses, we, I could have you back at some point. I would love it if you did a book tour here in Kansas city too, because, uh, uh you know, I, I'm sure when you were thinking this book was getting ready to come out, you were probably you guys were planning doing book signings and all that, correct? Yeah. Well, we did do a
1: lot of stuff. It's, it's, it's interesting. Like you can never do, no matter what you do, somebody always pops up and says, Hey, why didn't you come to Kansas city? <laughs> and, you know, I would love to go everywhere. Um, you know, if I didn't have a family and other obligations, I would just get in my car and drive to another. As I, I love tra- driving across the U.S. I love going across the um, center of the country. But we did do a bunch. You know, we did uh, we, we, we hit a lot of places, but I certainly would have hit more Um and it's always a pleasure and we like to do you know andy and i are both guitar players which um, i think is a really yeah.
0: cool thing i totally yeah. could tell while you're when you guys put all the gear at the back yeah the listing yeah. of all the gear i was like you could tell you guys were guitar yeah, players. yeah
1: thank you well and and i'm like i think of myself as a guy who plays guitar andy is a great guitar player yeah, he really, really is yeah. yeah he can play the stevie stuff beautifully so some of the most fun we had was doing uh, musical events we were down in austin a couple of times um, and we did great events both times. The first time was the weekend the book came out. Um, we did a great event that afternoon at uh, books, uh, Book uh, People in Austin, and Tommy came. Oh, really? Uh, Tommy was sitting in the front row, and he sat and signed books with us for a half an hour. And that night at Seaboy's, uh, which is a club that Jimmy actually plays at every Friday and Saturday that he's in town, um, we, we did a great event. It was sold out. Tommy got up and played, uh, Denny Freeman, Roddy Colonna. Um, these are all the guys who played with stevie over the years danny freeman um it was a wonder owc oh, clark um, yeah. a wonderful wonderful night and then we went back we played at antones uh with some of the same guys danny freeman mike flanagan uh we did a show and we've done several around here in new york we did one in los angeles it's really fun you know andy andy just crushes it all night and i get up and play a cold shot and I try enjoy a couple other things with him, but you know, I have no pressure. I play rhythm guitar and sing a couple verses and stuff It you know, the pressure is all on Andy and uh, he's great, you know, so I'd urge anyone go online and just, you know, go to YouTube and search Andy Alador at Stevie Ray Vaughan. You'll hear him playing some of that stuff.
0: I will actually, I'll put in the show notes to the, the podcast, I can put some links up there so people can just That'd click on it. That'd be yeah, great. I'll send you an email. Absolutely. So real quick before we go, so I know we aren't going to have nearly enough time to, to do this justice, but I really, I started reading your book about you in China. And this is the, this is a crazy story. Somebody could write a book. Yeah. I know you wrote your own book, but this is a yeah. story. This is almost like, a, I'm i trying to think like a Ron Howard type movie kind of idea, yeah. right? Thank I mean, you. Well, we, uh,
1: I uh, that movie that book was optioned for a movie by um, Ivan Reitman uh, and, and went through a couple of scripts and went pretty far uh, where we thought it was going to get made. And it it did. not it sort of petered out. Um, but I, I just it's a shame. My real dream was to have Cameron Crowe do it. Uh, I think it would make a great Cameron Crowe story. Totally. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I mean, to, to summarize, I moved to China in 2005. My kids were, I think, two, four and seven. Um, I quit my job as a senior writer for guitar world and slammed the basketball magazines. I had like these dream gigs, but I just, my wife is a journalist. She was a, uh, an editor at the wall street journal. And she got offered the job of um, Beijing bureau, China bureau chief based in Beijing. And um, she came home and told me about it. And I pushed her to do it. And she was sort of shocked because I had never wanted to move um, and risk my gigs. Cause uh, I worked from home, but it was, I went to New York a lot. Um, We live outside New York, but I just had this feeling and I just had the greatest experience from the start. I had so much uh, fun exploring China and then... um my second year there, I met up with a Chinese guitar player named Woody Wu. And we formed a band called Woody Allen, <laughs> which, um, you know, if we knew we were going to take it as far as we did, we probably would have chosen a more serious name. But I'm glad right. we the first time it was literally like a one time open mic. We were hosting an open mic, but nobody else really came and we just played all night and we had so much fun. We we just kept doing it. And then eventually Woody brought in this incredible Chinese rhythm section um, and it, we had this incredible band and, uh, I had never done it before. I mean, I'd played guitar for years, been a guitar world, you know, I played with friends bands, sure. you know, I would sit in, but mostly like as a guy playing rhythm guitar for a couple of songs and, um, did a lot of acoustic playing with friends and stuff. But I had never been a, a band leader, a front man, never really written songs. Um, but it just, the opportunity was there and we just went for it and we ended up touring all over and, recording an album, getting on Chinese TV and radio. And, um, you know, it was just, it was a blast. And we were riding high when my wife basically got pulled back here. We had to come back. You know,
0: it's um, so, I'm curious, Alan, I would think the answer is yes, but you you can tell me. So with that experience, it probably informed your writing in the future. So when you're writing about Steve Ray Vaughn playing live or whoever, now that you've done it right it's kind of a different uh, i mean there's nothing quite like playing live i mean i've yeah. done it for years but i think it's absolutely it's a different handle.
1: absolutely yeah absolutely i mean in the 10 years since i've been back i've played a lot live um i formed a band here with the guys that i used to always kick around and just sort of jam with and we've been playing a lot called called i named the band big in china after the book because we were forming right around the time of the book and then i put together a band called friends of the brothers um to play Allman Brothers music with uh, we actually just came together to play a tribute to Butch Trucks when he passed away that was the intention Um, but I invited my friends who I thought were the best Allman Brothers players which was Andy who played with Dickie Betts for 12 years Um, Junior Mack who's a great singer and guitar player who played with J-Mo still plays with J-Mo for about 15 years um, and Peter Levin, great keyboard player, who played with uh, Greg Allman for the last five years of his life, and we just it was a tribute. And anyhow, it ended up being great. And we've expanded it. We've got guys in there from the Zen Tricksters and Tower of Power, and uh, you know all the New Master sounds. It's just been a wonderful, wonderful experience. And we've played uh, a lot of places. And so, the more I do it, the yeah, the the more informed I am in my writing for sure because. It's not just understanding the music, but but sort of having more and more of a feel for the business side of it, you know. Yeah, game, which ain't life. great. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, the life on the road, booking agents, clubs, load in, sound check, everything about it. Uh, the more I do it, the more uh, the more informed I am, the better I can relate to people and the better my interviews are.
0: That's great. Well, like I said, you have an open invitation. You want to come back in like 6 months. I do want to be really uh, cognizant of your time, but I will put Thank in you. in the show notes everything, all your books, whether it's your your China experience, your Almond Brothers. We didn't even really get to talk about the Almond Brothers. Yeah. We'll do that another time. And and it's it's such a great delight. Like I said, I love the book you can even go on Amazon, Alan. You can see my review of your book with five stars from six months ago. So I'm not just blowing smoke Thank up you. Here, up I
1: really appreciate that. There. And we have some really exciting news, some some stuff we're working on with um, Texas Flood, um, some film projects, but I'm not allowed to announce them specifically yet. So hopefully in the next few months, we'll, that will be public and we can come back and talk about that as well. I would love
0: to. Yeah, I've always wondered why it hasn't been a movie yet.
1: Well partly because it's you know jimmy's has been hesitant to deal with it and um it might never be a movie but we're working on some stuff that's that's exciting and i, I look forward to it you know being something i can talk
0: about yeah that's great last question who else would you like to write a book about is it you know want to do <laughs> oh nobody's really done a west montgomery book you know yeah you that's know, another I, tragic tale where he dies at 45 you know yeah
1: um the, uh, Leon Russell is another great one who I think is is really underrepresented. Um, both guys, Leon Russell and Wes Montgomery are examples of guys I love, love their music. I don't know that much about their lives. So I'd have like a huge amount of research to do just to get started. Right. Um, I really don't know. I, I wish I was in the middle of a project when this lockdown started because I've barely left my house in two and a half months. Right.
0: Um,
1: you know, I'm right in the epicenter here outside of New York City and it's been very intense. So we've been really laying low and I, I wish I had started a book like a week before. That would have been awesome. <laughs> but uh, I didn't. So I I have a few things I'm kicking around, but uh, I, 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 nothing yet.
0: I hear you, man. We all gotta make the most of our yeah. time and try to live this new normal, right? Not go crazy. So I exactly. I have been playing live shows on my with my band out on my huge deck. That's what we've oh, been doing. And then just putting them fun. up on Facebook on you while well, you got, you know, to do something. Yeah,
1: that's fun. I, I'm I'm about ready to do that too. I'd like to have the guys come and play in
0: my driveway. Absolutely. Well, Alan, yep. thanks so much, man. It's been a total right. joy. Be safe, man. Bye bye. alan paul everybody again the book is called texas flood the inside story of stevie ray vaughn and you can find that wherever you can find books uh and it's published by st martin's press really appreciate alan taking the time and it was a total joy to get to talk about stevie ray always happy to do that and uh i don't think uh obviously none of us is going to get over it completely right it's just uh it's it's a tragic turn to great american story um wish it had ended better but uh, at least we had music from him for several years and i I still cherish it so that's it for this episode of trading fours uh join us next time i've actually got something completely different i've got two different vocalists from seattle both jacqueline Tabor and Paige turner and they're both going to talk to us a little bit about what they're experiencing right now in seattle and the projects they're working on and all those uh, types of things so it's going to be a great listen Uh, Both these ladies are fabulous. You're going to really enjoy their music. They're very different, uh, but it's great. You're going to really like it. So until next time, go out, support music virtually, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.